This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Bible admonishes us to study and show ourselves approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a very first-time listener, we're especially glad that you've joined us. People listen uh, locally at 88.7 FM, but also through the internet at WAGP.net, where we broadcast around the world. And so for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. If there's a passage of Scripture you're studying, you're not sure as to its meaning or application, or you'd like biblical counsel on a subject, all you need to do is you can pick up the phone, call us locally at 843 the 525-1859 number, so the 843 exchange is 525-1859 or toll-free at 877, the call letters of the station, WAGP980. Or as many people prefer to do, they just email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP. Net. And if you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we will attempt to answer it in that fashion. So with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and get started. All right, Pastor, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy and Mr. Forstner. My Bible study question is concerning when the Hebrews were conquering lands as they entered the Promised Land. Referring to the NASB translation with marginal notes, the verses are Exodus 23.23, Exodus 23.28, Exodus 32, or excuse me, Exodus 33.2, Deuteronomy 7.20, and Joshua 24.12. Did you get all those, it Rick? It's clear that Yahweh, <laughs> all caps, L-O-R-D, orchestrated the sending. Yeah. But what exactly did he send? Could you help reconcile my angel versus an angel, and plural hornets, they, versus singular, the hornet, it. Okay, good question. So let me start with that. It's several questions you're asking. We try to answer just one per per caller, but let's go ahead and deal with the angel. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Mosquitoites. No, not really, but those are the peoples who are in the land. And by the way, there are people today who argue that Israel unfairly stole this land. No, it was promised. We call it the promised land. And if you remember, 400 years earlier, God appeared to Abraham, made an unconditional covenant, and he said when the iniquity of these people have been made full that the Jewish people would be given this land. So it was actually the patience of God that waited for these people to repent. And if you've studied your biblical history, you know how heinous and wicked they were, right down to the sacrificing of their own little babies and children. And so God allowed them to have this land. Now, as to my angel, 
Uh, most take it, and I would agree that this is consistent with what we've seen all the way through the Exodus, that my angel is a reference to the angel of the Lord. I know it doesn't say that specifically here, but if we're going to be consistent, the angel of the Lord led them all the way through the wilderness and then into the promised land, and I take it that he's doing the same here. Who's the angel of the Lord? Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel. And so I think you have the personal pronoun that's accompanied here with Malach in Hebrew, my angel. I think it's in reference specifically to the angel of the Lord. And of course, the angel of the Lord, the debate is, well, which member of the Trinity is he? Because he's obviously no normal angel. Uh, He is called Yahweh. And so he is equated with Yahweh in Scripture. And of course, before Bethlehem, when we see the incarnation realized and the Lord Jesus is born, uh, what began in Nazareth realized nine months later in Bethlehem as he came into this world, um, before he was incarnated in human flesh, there are times in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord appears. And so um, he appears physically uh, as Yahweh. And there's a whole study I have on this if you want. I go through virtually every passage in the Scripture where this happens, where one, we realize, oh, the angel of the Lord is not an ordinary messenger, but God himself. And then it's a matter of which member of the Trinity, and we're able to narrow it down, letting Scripture interpret Scripture through uh, to God the Son. And so if you go to my course on angelology, uh, angels for us, angels against us, angels for us, I deal with an hour-long teaching on the angel of the Lord and walk through all these passages, including the one that you just stated. So great question. If you got more questions, one per person. We have so many that come in. They literally just pile up, and we can't even get to all of them. So we're just trying to keep one question per person. Let's go to the next one. All right. An anonymous uh, listener writes, I've been struggling with forgiving someone for over a year now. I told my husband last year sometime near Christmas that I knew I needed forgiving uh, to forgive this person, and I remember sitting on the floor next to our Christmas tree confessing to God that I had such anger and bitterness towards this individual, and that I knew I needed to forgive him, and I asked the Lord to help me with that. In that moment, I remember feeling such peace. I truly believe I had forgiven him. I won't go into detail about what happened, but I will tell you he did some work for my husband and I, which he never fully completed. We paid him in full because my husband and dad were able to finish the work for free. What a blessing that was, and I'm truly thankful for that. However, there have been multiple problems with the work that this man did do. He refuses to take responsibility for it and wants to charge me for the additional work he needs to do, which is covered under warranty. Furthermore, he tells me he will come and fix it and never shows up. This has been going on since January of this year. I've spoken to other professionals in his field. They tell me I have grounds to sue, which I really don't want to do, or I could report him to the state and at the very least have a mark against his license and possibly have it taken away. These are both drastic measures, which I really don't want to do. He's a brother in Christ and a member of the church I attend. Okay. Okay. I really just want it fixed. I'm not asking you for advice about the incomplete work, but how do you continue to forgive someone in this instance when I'm told he will fix it and doesn't show up or has an excuse of how busy he is and will get it done, but months have gone by? Does forgiveness look like walking away from him and paying someone else to do the job he's supposed to do? Or can you forgive someone and still report them to the state? Truthfully, I don't think he's good at his job and would hate for someone else to go through what we went through. When Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, it was finished. It was complete. 
And it says in Hebrews and Jeremiah that he'll remember our sins no more. And I know we're supposed to give like uh, we're supposed to give like he forgave, but it's so hard when you paid for a job to be done and you continue to get the runaround. How do I forgive this man the way Jesus did? How do I live this out? I have prayed a lot about this, but I'm still so angry and bitter towards him. Yeah, I'm so sorry for all the consternation that you're feeling on the inside. And it's definitely an issue that you can come to grips with, that you've struggled with. Um, you know, you're dealing with a brother in Christ, and you're not only dealing with a brother in Christ, you're dealing with a member of the church. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints of this world, will, the saints will judge the world if the world is judged by you? Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there it is is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? That would be preferable, he says, than to mock the Lord's testimony before some secular court. So you're dealing with a brother in Christ. You're dealing with a church member. And so the way this should be handled is with the leaders of your church. Uh, we call it elder court, so to speak, at CBC. We are um, structured in such a way that our polity is we are elder-led, we are deconserved, which I think, of course, is the New Testament model. I know some churches have a singular elder form of government, and the deacons end up functioning like elders, though they are two distinct offices and the qualifications are not the same. They're much higher for an elder, so we shouldn't blur the two together. But however you're structured, you need to go to the leadership of the church. You need to present before them what took place. I hope when you say, like, for instance, you have a warranty that that's in writing, and it's not just he said, she said kind of uh, talk, uh, and you should put it in writing, even if it's a brother in Christ whom you love and you honor and you trust. Why? Because people are forgetful. Oh, is that what I promised you? Oh, I, I, I've forgotten that. And you put it in writing, it takes away any ambiguity. You go to the elders of the church. And let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, again, the Bible says in Proverbs, a man's case seems just until another comes and examines it. And so there's two sides to every story. But assuming your side is accurate and reflective of what actually took place, and the elders say to this brother, hey, listen, you made a promise you need to complete the work. You didn't. The um, the family members stepped in, finished your work. Now there's warranty work that should be covered, and he refuses to do that. Then it becomes a church discipline issue at that point, where if he refuses to listen, you treat him like an unbeliever. Now, preferably, ideally, if he is a true brother, you know, it's better to... Uh, be defrauded, Paul said, than to mock the name of Christ in some secular court. And so God does forbid a believer to sue another believer. Though if he is treated technically as an unbeliever, 
then you could technically sue him. And sometimes you're not dealing with the little work, you know, construction that he did in his house, but sometimes thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you were not able to complete that arbitration process through the elders of the church or deacons or, again, however you're structured, and then uh, he, um, you know, is excommunicated, so to speak, from the church, you could technically sue him. But I don't think it would be preferable in your situation. It sounds like we're not dealing with tens of thousands of dollars. It was something that your father-in-law and husband, you said, were able to step in. He should be held accountable. And if he's not willing to be held accountable and to keep the promises that he's made, then he's a really bad testimony to your church. And if he doesn't listen to the church as a whole, then he should be dismissed from the fellowship of believers, and that has consequences, as First Corinthians 5, the prior chapter echoes, where you have a brother who's living in open sexual sin. He's sleeping with his stepmother. Everyone in the church knew it. They did nothing. Paul said, well, if you're not going to do anything, I might, may not be there physically, but I'm going to do it in spirit, and he excommunicated him and gave him over to the devil because there is a protective umbrella that comes uh, in the church body. In addition, I would probably bring you, if you're in my office and sitting before me, um, I would bring you to 1 Peter chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul uh, Peter is dealing with people in the uh, church who have believers who are their masters, and sometimes unbelievers who are their masters, and that's a whole other sermon in itself. But he says, he makes this statement, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and genuine, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure This finds, of course, favor with God. And then he says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, uh, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Because if anyone ever suffered unjustly, it was the Lord Jesus because he never did anything wrong in his whole life. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit ever found in his mouth. And yet while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he entrusted himself to God who judges righteously. And, of course, it resulted in our salvation as he bore our sins in his body on the cross. So there are times when the believer just has to suffer unjustly and follow Christ's example. And if you do that to the glory of God, God can certainly honor it. But, again, I think this brother needs to be held accountable through the leadership of the church. And if he's not willing to either reimburse you if that's what they decide for the work that he didn't do, or at least at the minimum, they may forgive that debt and say, well, at the minimum, you need to uh, follow through in the warranty work. Then if that church is worth its leadership, then they're going to put him under church discipline, and it may mean ultimately dismissal. And if that happens, then I would suggest to you that you just leave it there. Uh, That's what I would do. I would suffer unjustly. Now, you mentioned, because I think the biggest issue here is forgiving him. And you mentioned the example of Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews, of course, quotes the prophet Jeremiah in the 10th chapter, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What does that mean? You know, people say, well, you're supposed to forgive and forget. Is that really what the Scripture says? Um, Listen, if someone were to break into your house and murder a loved one, 
You'll never forget that person. So what does it mean, forgive and forget? It's not like God gets a case of divine amnesia when he remembers our sin no more. He's the omniscient God. But the way he remembers them is he does not hold that debt against us. And if you've really forgiven a person, the way you remember it becomes instrumental in whether or not you've truly released the person from the debt. And so it might be helpful to meditate on 1 Peter 2 and 3, but also on the parable that the Lord Jesus tells, of course, where a man um, is a debtor, you know, the question that precedes the situation is, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to uh, seven times, and Jesus said, no, an infinite number of times, 70 times seven. And then he tells that parable in Matthew 18 of a guy who has a $20 million debt, and his king graciously releases him from the debt. Does he forget it? No, because when he goes home and he has a $100 debt and he demands the same repayment, he doesn't graciously forgive him as the king had forgave him. And, of course, that's a mark that a person is an unbeliever. So on the one hand, forgiving a person is a sign of conversion, Jesus teaches, but it is also something that a believer can struggle with. And so Paul commands us, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just like God in Christ Jesus forgave you. And so sometimes you just have to make a list of everything you can ever think of that God ever forgave you of and then put it up against this one brother who ripped you off and say, look, if God forgave me of this $20 million debt, I've got to forgive my brother of this $100 debt. And again, it's the way you remember it. If you remember this brother with constant bitterness and hatred in your heart, then you really haven't released him of the debt. So God will give you the grace to do what he asks you to do, and he'll help you with it. But I think the starting point would be to go to your pastor and the leadership and hold a a Christian court, so to speak. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead. We're listening. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Turn down your radio because it will throw you off with a six-second delay. Go ahead. I'm listening. Hello? Yes, go ahead. We're listening. Okay, I'm sorry. I can hardly hear you on my phone. Okay. Um. I took um, um, your uh, spiritual gifts inventory um, online test at Community Bible Church. Yes. And of my three top scores, two of them uh, make perfect sense, but there's one that I don't know exactly how it would be defined or how I would use it um, for the church, and and it kind of surprised me. Tell me what your three top scores were. So I wonder if you could explain it to me. Okay, tell me what your three top scores were, because there's what we call gift bundles sometimes, or gifts that have similar characteristics that may not necessarily be true. Go ahead, I'm listening. Okay. Mercy. Okay. Prophecy. And service. Mercy, prophecy, and service. So... A mercy and service have similar characteristics. You may have one of those gifts or both of those gifts. Which gifts surprised you, so to speak? Prophecy. Okay. Um, So, again, sometimes when people take these exams, and it's not a foolproof test. uh, By the way, for those who are listening, um, 
uh, I have, and we've had people really all over the world take this test since I just recently did a series on spiritual gifts. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, it's available there. It's section three if you take the course on spiritual gifts. It's called a spiritual gift inventory. And I ask a, a series of questions that might potentially surface your test, 128 to be specific. So it takes generally 20, 25 minutes for someone to uh, answer it. And I suggest that not only you take it, but I also suggest that someone who knows you really well take it. And in addition, when you take the exam, don't answer the questions the way you would like them to be, but the way they actually are. Um, If you have the gift of prophecy, there will be some characteristics. Prophecy doesn't have a um, a foretelling dimension to it because the canon of Scripture is now closed, but it does have a foretelling dimension to it uh, where someone takes the Word of God and they're able to share it. Now, again, there's a common responsibility that we all have as believers to teach the Word of God. In fact, it's a requirement for someone to serve in the office of elder. They don't necessarily have to have a speaking gift, though some do. So he speaks of those who work hard at preaching and teaching to be shown double honor. But certainly there are people um, who have the ability to teach God's Word. In fact, again, it's a mark of maturity based on Uh, Hebrews chapter 5. But prophecy is the ability to communicate God's Word with authority and power, and it brings conviction on people such that they want to make change. Uh, The word prophecy, prophemi, is a Greek word that means to, to speak forth. And so there is the office of prophet in the Old Testament, and then there's the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. And again, while the canon of Scripture is closed and that dimension of the gift is not being given where God gave direct revelation through individuals, the idea of foretelling God's truth, expounding revelation that he's already given and applying it to people is still seen. So if you have the gift of prophecy, um, you have a speaking gift. Uh, If you're a woman, then it would be exercised with women or with children because God... Again, men and women are equal, but we uh, play different roles within the body of Christ, just like in marriage, a husband and wife are equal, but there is a head. In the church, men and women are equal, but women are not to preach and teach and exercise authority over a man. They're not to fill the office of elder or pastor. First Timothy 2 in chapter 3 are very clear and specific on that, along with a number of other passages, and I have a whole series on that if someone is interested. But uh, mercy and service, people will often score high on both of those where they may have one of those gifts or both of those gifts. Why would they score high on both of them? Because one aspect of the gift of mercy is to serve people who are in physical need. So mercy is the spiritual gift where you have the uh, genuine empathy for people who suffer and a compassion for people with physical needs, and you translate that in a way that you meet that need. You come alongside and you meet that need. It might be bringing just comfort to someone in the hospital. It might be uh, coming into their home and bringing meals to them as they arrive back from the hospital. And it's done with a sense of cheerfulness, the word cheerful, 
uh, hilaritis in Greek uh, is connected to our word hilarious. Uh, it is to be done cheerfully because, you know, when someone is sick or distraught or despondent, they don't need some, you know, depressed person coming in. They need someone who's going to come along and really help them. But again, it's a service-oriented gift. And so in that sense, it can have some very clear parallels between the two. Um, So that's where I would start. Um, You probably have either service or mercy or both. If you are heavy on the compassion side and meeting the needs of people who are sick or maybe have just ongoing illnesses and you want to come alongside and help, it's probably mercy with similar characteristics, it's possible you have both. You'll know if you have the gift of prophecy, and others will too, because it's a speaking gift. You've exercised it uh, with other women. You've seen people respond. People are blessed by it. You, you'll you'll just know. All right, good question. We could spend a lot more time on it, but we have other callers, so let's go. All right, we do have another live caller standing by on the air. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Uh, fine, thank you. How can we help today? Hi, yes. I just have a little bit of confliction um, in regards to voting. Um, I'm a young American. This is going to be my first time voting for the CR presidency, um, and I'm clearly not going to vote Democratic because I don't agree with the policies. But I do have a hard time um, with the other the conservative candidate as well, um, just because of some of the things that he said about you know other individuals in the country and just some of the things that he's done and just his reputation. And everybody's telling me to overlook that and that we should be voting for policies and not a person's heart. And I just have a hard time with that. So I'm really confused and I kind of feel guilty because I don't really want to vote for either, but I don't see any other options. So does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. And what you are feeling on the inside, of course, uh, many, many believers have, have felt. Um, So you're right. When you vote for a candidate, you're not just voting for the candidate. You are also voting for the platform and the platform this year that is being presented to the American public by Democrats is more God hating and more baby killing than any other single platform in their history. So definitively, you can read the platform. It's pretty extensive. But, you know, um, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the v- former vice president, for instance, is arguing that it's a woman's right to have an abortion up until the day before the baby is born, that's in the platform of the Democratic Party. Now, listen, I could never vote for anyone. I don't care if they're a Republican or a Democrat or what they are, if they're in favor of killing little babies in the womb. And if life begins at conception, as the Bible definitively clearly says, I don't know how a regenerate believer could do that and stand before God because the Lord Jesus gave a very strict warning that to hurt a little one, it'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and drown in the deepest sea than to do that. And that's what the Democratic Party definitively is doing in their endorsement of abortion. And may I remind anyone who's listening to me today that it was Joe Biden who forced the hand of Barack Obama to come out publicly in favor of homosexual marriage. If you remember the first time our president ran Barack Obama, 
And whether you like him or not, we're commanded to always pray for our president. So if Joe Biden is elected, I am going to pray for him because I'm commanded to do that. But the first time he was elected, he said marriage is between a man and a woman, period. He presented himself with the traditional view. Obviously, he didn't believe that because when Joe Biden is being questioned publicly, he comes out and says he's in favor of gay marriage. They said, your vice president said he's in favor of gay marriage. What do you say, Mr. President? And it forced his hand, and Barack Obama really showed his true colors in terms of what he believed in reference to gay marriage. So you've got issues like that. You've got the Equality Act that is in the platform. The Equality Act will make it illegal for a believer uh, who is trying to deal or counsel with someone who is transgender or homosexual to say that you can change. It will be against the law. Now, what that will mean for churches, we don't know. Uh, My guess is, is that if I, as a pastor, lead a homosexual to Christ and begin to explain the sanctification process where they can change as a new creature in Christ, is that churches will lose their 501c3 nonprofit status. They'll say, oh, you can believe whatever you want. You just will not have a nonprofit status anymore, such that when people give to your church, no tax deduction. Well, that shouldn't drive the believer ultimately. It should be obedience to God, tax deduction or not. But I'm sure there will be ramifications, and if you've read the Equality Act, there's a lot of ramifications for the Judeo-Christian ethic. This country will fundamentally change. Now, is Donald Trump, you know, a born-again believer? I don't know. You know, some say, like Dr. Dobson, that he came to faith in Christ and he's a baby Christian. I, I don't have that assurance. I'd like to think he, that he is a believer, but I, I don't have any assurance that he is. Um, he's not a perfect president. He's not a perfect king. There's only one perfect king, and that's the Lord Jesus. And someday he will rule and reign, and we'll see just how great and magnificent he is in all of his glory and beauty. But Donald Trump is obviously not there. But understand, too, that a vote for Donald Trump is not just a vote for Donald Trump. It's also a vote for the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence you know, who's an evangelical, born-again, Bible-believing Christian who came out of an Irish Catholic family and then was converted and now is an evangelical believer and often goes to church, the church that one of my sons goes to in Washington, D.C. Not to mention, you know, he's had like Rents Priebus, the chief of staff. He's a a born-again Christian and a close confidant to the president. Um, You know, Ben Carson, he's a born-again Christian, Uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, she's a born-again Christian. Mike Pompeo, he's a born-again Christian. Uh, So you got, you know, Carson, all these people. Uh, Nikki Haley, supposedly she is now a born-again Christian. She has served under the president's choice in the past. Add to that, the president has done more to protect human life than any other single president in the last 40 years. You cannot find another Republican president who has been more pro-life and done more practically speaking. And may I remind my Democratic friends, too, that if they take over, they are going to remove an act that was passed in 1978 that forbade the use of your tax dollars to fund abortions. 
that act is going to be rescinded. Biden says he'll do it on the first day of office as an executive order. I dread the thought that my tax dollars are going to be used to murder little innocent babies in the womb. Uh, Henry Hyde, it's called the Hyde Amendment, and that will be rescinded immediately. Uh, You're going to see a thrust towards the LGBTQ a plus lifestyle like you've never seen before. Our president, in his mind, marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, the Supreme Court thinks otherwise, not to mention there will probably be a few more Supreme Court replacements in the next uh, administration, not to mention, I don't think it would be popular with the American people, but it could happen. The Democrats are threatening to pack the Supreme Court from 9 to 12 to 14. Uh, FDR tried to do this once. It didn't go over with the American people, but who knows? You know, and then who knows what will happen fundamentally to America. And our president has done more to defend Israel. And I think that's one of the only reasons we're still standing. God said he'll bless the nation that blesses Israel. Does Biden and the Democratic Party have the same respect for Israel that our president? All you have to do is read their own words. Definitively not. So to me, it's not a hard decision. And again, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I am a Christocrat, and I'm going to vote for a candidate that best represents a Christian worldview. I don't care if it's the president of the United States or a dog catcher. If I have an opportunity to vote, I'm going to try to vote for the person that best reflects that. I think of my own senator, a black African-American who I begged for 20 minutes on the phone A man in the South Carolina Senate, not the federal government, but the South Carolina Senate, to stop prohibiting a bill that would protect human life in South Carolina. And this guy was a pastor in Charleston. Of course, he was murdered with eight of his other church members. And I said, how can you claim to be a born-again pastor and be in favor of abortion and tell me that it's a woman's right? And two weeks after that conversation, sadly, he was murdered. Sadly, he was murdered. It was pathetic what took place. And sadly, when I called his secretary to initially get an appointment, she said, well, our pastor doesn't believe in abortion. I think she was born again. But sadly, um, he did. And he was the one who was chairman of that committee who stopped all the bills to protect human life. So listen. If you're a born-again believer, you're going to give an account for everything that you do at the judgment seat of the just. And uh, I know there are so-called evangelicals for Biden who came out in the last three days with 200 members, but I read the list of those guys who signed that document, and I know pathetically most of them are lost. They're not evangelical at all. Listen, can anything good come out of full theological seminary? 30 years ago, they denied the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. That seminary is worth nothing. And yet you've got people from that seminary who have led this movement, so-called evangelicals for Biden. And, you know, and they tell me, well, you know, we've got to look at the whole. How can you dismiss the murder of innocent babies? And let's talk about African-Americans. They accuse our president of being a racist. He has done more for black colleges in this country than any other single president in the last 30 years where all these black African-American presidents would have to go into the Oval Office year after year, beg the president in rule, including Obama, 
to get the funds that they needed to survive. And this president comes in, he steps in and guarantees the funds for the next 10 years. Um, so I don't believe he's a racist as some people make him out to be. If you listen to the fake news, you'll believe all kinds of things about him because I hear things on CNN and then I hear things um, in writing by the person that they're accusing. I think, man, they've really taken some of these people out of context. And my son worked for the Secretary of Health and Human Resources. He worked for him some years ago. He's a born-again believer. You walk into his office. I've been to his office. He has a Bible on his desk. You know, and there's some really good people in this administration who stand for godly principles, and it's one of our few things that we might still be able to lean on before this country dissolves. Anyway, I'm getting riled up. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. So we live in Wisconsin, and we have been six months without uh, being able to go to church in person. And about three weeks ago, we were able to go and it was so refreshing and just amazing just to be with other people um, besides in our living room by ourselves. Um, sadly, now, three weeks later, they have closed the church again. And there are so many people that we um, just fellowship with. And if there are people who are willing to get together, um, would it be wrong to uh, like get people together that are willing to do that even if the church like for whatever reasons can't physically be open or would that be I don't know rebellious in some kind of way no it's a good question and I, I my guess is is that if you went and spoke to your pastor and said, hey, a group of us are going to have a Bible study in our home this Friday night. You don't have any objections to you. My guess is he'll say, I have no objections at all. But he will probably encourage you to do it wisely, to practice social distancing, possibly to wear masks. And that is a hot issue. It's a divisive issue in the church, you know, because you've got churches like Grace Community where John MacArthur is the pastor, and it appears that there's very few people wearing masks. Um, and supposedly no one has gotten sick. I don't believe that. I don't think John MacArthur or any of the elders are being deceptive or anything. I don't believe that for a second. I believe they're honorable men. There's few men I respect more than John MacArthur. Here, this guy is 81 years old, and he is living for Christ and preaching God's Word in an uncompromised fashion. But when you get 3,000 people in close quarters, there's going to be somebody get sick. And we've had 18 sick in our church at Community Bible Church. None, fortunately, by the grace of God, hospitalized. But listen, there have been evangelical churches across the nation where people have not only gotten sick, they've died. We just had a young person in Beaufort County in their 20s who died. And, you know, no pre-existing problems or anything like that, just died of COVID. Uh, Yesterday, I read about a mother, 43 years old, and and a teacher in North Carolina, and she died of COVID. You know, no pre-existing conditions. So that can happen, and there have been some limited, rare cases where children have even died. 
So it's important that you respect the leadership of your church. And if the leadership of your church says, no, we're not going to meet, and sometimes, or, you know, we're going to meet outside. I know there's a few states, I don't know on Wisconsin, but for instance, in Washington state, they say you can't meet inside or outside. To me, that's a violation of the Constitution. And uh, they ought to take some steps in which to, you know, hold the state accountable through a formal lawsuit. And I know there are some people through some great Christian organizations there at work on that in that state. But um, listen, think about it in the first century. You couldn't gather in as the as time went on and you had, you know, guys like Diocletian, who is the emperor of Rome. He hated Christians, despised Christians. You had Nero who hated Christians, despised Christians. In fact, he wanted to do a rebuild on the city of Rome, and he didn't like the way the slums looked, so he burned them, and the people came unglued, and so he ended up blaming it on the Christians. And to defend his point of view and the rightness of his lie, he took Christians and he dipped them in oil and made them human torches in his garden. So what did the church do? They met at houses. They met in all kinds of different places. So there is um, still an opportunity for God's people. You know, w- what is mandated is that the church somehow meet. Uh, we meet, we have the freedom to meet on Sunday morning. You know, Awana and children's ministries and adult Bible fellowships and Sunday school, none of these are mandated by Scripture. Those are just privileged extras that we have. What is mandated is that we gather. And uh, how that looks in one city one country, one state may be different from the way it looks at Community Bible Church. But no, you need the fellowship of believers. And by the way, there's an assumption in verses like Hebrews 3.13 that you have relationships outside of the time in which the church gathers physically and corporately. When he says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Assumption is if you're doing it every day, he's not talking just about Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock or whenever you meet. There's ongoing relationships with God's people. So, um, and, and let me say, because I get calls from pastors all the time because of search the scriptures and people who listen on the internet, and some are like super frustrated because they are mandating things that say Grace Community Church is not mandating. And they're taking a lot of heat for it. Well, let's just say for the sake of argument, your pastor mandates that when you meet, you have to wear a mask either the whole service or till a certain point. Could it possibly be that there could be a three-year-old or a teenager or someone even in the prime of health with no problems whose life God is wanting to spare through the mandate that that elder board set because he sees people who fall into those categories? Yes, and I don't buy for a second the nonsense that the masks do no good at all. I heard this pastor the other day saying, oh, the size of the particles. That come. Yeah, well, what is he, a medical doctor? He's going against Harvard Medical School, John Hopkinson, Stanford, all these major medical schools and leading physicians in the nation who say the masks do help to cut down the spread of the virus. You know, I'm not going to do that. Not to mention, neither am I going to, as a pastor, Say, well, you know, the older people, I don't really want them to come and worship, so just stay home because you're higher risk. 
Now, look, if they need to stay home, we have a lot of African-Americans in our church, and a lot of them have elected to stay home because they are in a high-risk category and they are live streaming. So your church needs to do something and can do something. Um, You know, there was a time for about three months we could only live stream in South Carolina, and that's what we did. And uh, listen, my son-in-law is a pastor, and they didn't have any of this equipment And so he just took his laptop and stood in front of a podium and did it on Facebook, and several hundred of his members joined in that way. So there's things your church can do that they ought to do, and there's probably avenues for fellowship beyond the four walls of the local assembly that you need to exercise. And is that rebellious? No, but you don't need to do it in a spirit of rebellion, and I think you need to let your pastor know what you're doing, that you support him that you want to be respectful of the law, that you pray for him. You're not going behind his back, but a group of you want to get together for a Bible study and fellowship. And it would be hard for me to believe that he'd tell you no. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We uh, have a listener from Sam, or his name is Sami from Mardan, Pakistan. And he wants to know, how does one know about the spiritual gifts of God? Well, um, what I would suggest to this brother from Pakistan, and I'm just thrilled. I think this is our first ever uh, email from Pakistan, and it's a very, very difficult country to live in. Our church actually supports a a missionary couple there whom I cannot name over the air, um, but the the letters and the reports and the face-to-face visits that I've had with this brother and his wife are absolutely horrifying to realize what God's people are experiencing in the persecution. And we as Americans, we think that could never happen to us. Well, you, you put the wrong people in leadership and you keep waving your puny little fist in the face of God Almighty and let the uh, politicians say, God bless you, but let's murder the babies. Let's pass laws in favor of perversion. Let's go against Israel and on and on the list can go. You don't think that will bring the judgment of God. We, we, we are deceived. And so it's a very difficult country, but this brother obviously has access to the Internet, and I would suggest that he listen to my whole course on spiritual gifts. But the number one way that you are going to find your spiritual gift is to grow spiritually. And there's an assumption in verses like 1 Peter 4.10 that spiritual gifts are discoverable as each one has received a special gift employ it, use it, and serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I often use the illustration of a newborn. When you hold the newborn, you don't know if they have been blessed of God to be artistic, musical, mechanically oriented, um, whatever, athletically gifted. You don't know until they grow and mature. And even so, on the day of your conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and he gives you at least one spiritual gift in which to serve God's people. And as you grow up in Christ, that gift will begin to manifest itself. So one, you want to become uh, educated. What are the gifts? What are, what are the 20 that are listed in Scripture? And again, I go through this. I give biblical examples in this course on spiritual gifts, um, how they function, how one gift is different from another, and so on. What gifts are still given today? I think at least 16 of the 20 that are listed. Um, Then we talk about how you discover your gift. And again, the number one thing is you grow. And if Billy Graham was right, before he died, he had said some years back that 90 to 95% of the true Christians in America have just stayed baby Christians. They've never grown up. 
And if you don't grow up and you just remain a baby, it's just like with a newborn, physically you don't know what God has wired them to do unless they mature. And so a lot of Christians are just out there in never-never land because they've never grown up. They've just remained babies in Christ. And so it is a divine human relationship, but there are things that you need to do. And if you're in a church where the pastor never opens the scriptures and teaches expositionally, there's obviously resources across the internet of sound Bible teaching. You can get the Search the Scriptures app on your phone. So grow, uh, think, uh, think uh, about what you might have. Paul talks about thinking in Romans 12, one of the four central passages in the New Testament over what your spiritual gift might be. Ask others who know you well as you grow what they think your spiritual gift will be. Uh, Paul will say in Romans 12, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So my mouth doesn't have difficulty recognizing the hand that feeds it. And when I have a particular spiritual gift, not only will it be obvious to me, but it will be obvious to other people. And so as I brought out in a sermon a few weeks ago, it was the mature leadership, say, in the church at Antioch that recognized that Paul and Barnabas were called men of God to be missionaries. Paul, of course, an apostle. I think Barnabas was too. And uh, indeed uh, needed their prayer support and their financial support. Uh, the leaders in the Jerusalem church saw that Judas and Silas should bring the decision of the Jerusalem uh, the Jerusalem conference to the whole church because uh, they had speaking gifts. Uh, the church in Jerusalem were able to recognize people who had gifts in serving and, and so on. So, you know, if you think you have, say, the gift of uh, of teaching or prophecy or exhortation and no one has the gift of listening, you probably have read it wrong. So, and I will say, too, that if your spiritual gift is in a particular area, it will bring not only a great sense of blessing to others, but it will bring a sense of joy. In fact, the word grace, gift, and joy are three related Greek words in the New Testament, uh, kara, charis, and so on, um, in terms of how a gift might manifest itself. But what you might want to do, this friend from Pakistan, even if you can't listen to the whole course— You might want to listen to uh, section four of the spiritual gifts course, and uh, it will help you to think this through a little bit more specifically. Great question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, hopefully we have time for this. Christy from Arizona dictated her question, when a Jew comes to faith in Christ, should they still practice their Jewish customs and traditions or not? Also, what do you think of Jonathan Kahn? Well, Christy, this is a great question. When a Jew comes to faith in Christ, there are certain traditions within a Jewish family that are not necessarily uh, obliterated. For instance, Christ, as indicated in John 10, recognized Hanukkah. It was not one of the uh, dictated um, ceremonies or festivals of the seven festivals that God had given. It was not one of the dictated ones that they had to, but Christ honored it, and he saw it as an opportunity. And I have uh, Jewish friends who are converted to Christ, and as such, they uh, are practicing things like Passover, not in terms of like we're looking for the Messiah and what it will fulfill, 
but as a teaching tool. And sometimes they've even brought in other Jewish friends who uh, indeed recognize that Jesus fulfilled uh, this, and they're celebrating it as a remembrance of what had happened. Uh, In addition, you've got people who uh, can be evangelized because each of the seven festivals teach something about the first or second coming of Christ. There are four that were done in the spring. All four of those have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. There's three, the fall festivals, that will be fulfilled during the seven-year tribulation period, culminating in the millennial reign of the Messiah. As the Jews, for instance, the Feast of Yom Kippur, different from Passover, but the Jews will recognize that the one whom they pierced was indeed their Messiah, and that Yom Kippur will be different for all the Jewish people, not all the Jewish people, but all the believing Jewish people during the time of the Great Tribulation. So um, there is a balance there where there's a clean break with Judaism, and this, of course, is what the um, writer to the Hebrews dealt with. Um, Jonathan Kahn, I'm assuming the one that uh, wrote The Harbinger, I think he's uh, very um, uninformed, inaccurate um, view of all kinds of um, biblical texts. I, I, I wouldn't trust him as far as I can spit. So um, I think there's a lot of false doctrine that he has entered into the church. And I'm not going to go so far to say that he's not a believer, but I think he's, if he is a believer, he's very, very confused and, uh, and has a lot of false teaching. It's possible for someone to be saved and not be, quote, unquote, a false teacher, but to have some false teaching. And I think he has some false teaching in some of uh, the things that he has written the Harbinger, the Oracle, and other things. Anyway, let's go to the next question. We're about out of time. We've only got about a minute and 19 seconds left. Hey, well, so let me just say, on the first Sunday in November, we have Friend Day at Community Bible Church. And you may be listening in another part of the country, but you have a loved one that is lost and you want to reach them with the gospel, email them for that Sunday at either 9.15 and 11, and I will do a simple presentation of the gospel with two groups of people in mind, A, unbelievers to come to Christ, and B, believers to learn how to share their faith in Christ. And so I have a little booklet I've written, Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend? It's now in 10 languages. In fact, we send it to free for people who pay the postage. We don't want to send you 50 and then just let them sit on a shelf. But if you'll pay the postage, we'll send them to you for free. It's a simple way in which to share Christ. And if you haven't personally introduced anyone to the Savior in the last few years, you might want to evaluate what you're doing. Or especially tune in or listen to the rebroadcasts on the very first Sunday in November. What Sunday? What's the date on that? November November 1st. November 1st. Yeah, we changed the clocks that day, too. Anyway, a little commercial for a few weeks away. Thanks for being with us today here on the Bible Line. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. 